Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Today is Friday, June 25th, 2021. On this day in 1968, six members of the Robeson family were killed in a horrific mass murder in northern Michigan. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a Spotify original from Parcast. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Today we'll discuss the unsolved massacre of the Robeson family and the man who was most likely responsible. Let's go back to the northern Michigan village of Goodhart on June 25, 1968. The killer crept slowly into the Blisswood Resort, which stood just 100 feet from Lake Michigan. They quietly moved toward an isolated cottage, found a dense pocket of trees to hide in, and waited for the sun to set. When the time was right, they shouldered their rifle and took careful aim. A shot rang out in the darkness. In an instant, the killer's main target was down, but the ordeal wasn't over yet. Over the next few minutes, they shot again through the window before finally approaching the cabin. Once inside, the assassin systematically hunted down each member of the Robeson family. Two adults and four children were murdered. The killer then closed all the windows, drew the curtains, and locked the doors. Though it was a warm June evening, they cranked the cabin's heat up all the way, perhaps hoping the hot air would cause the bodies to decompose faster and destroy the evidence. As the temperature in the cottage rose, the killer covered the broken window panes with sheets of cardboard and stuck a note on the outside of the building. It read, We'll be back, and was signed, Robeson. All six members of the family lay undisturbed inside the cottage for nearly a month. They were finally discovered on July 22nd after some other residents complained to the caretaker, Chauncey Bliss. They claimed a putrid stench had disrupted their bridge game. Bliss tracked the odor to the Robeson's cottage and jimmied his way inside. He expected to find a dead raccoon or some other animal, but when he opened the door and his eyes adjusted to the darkened interior, he could immediately tell something was wrong. The first thing he noticed was that the furnace was on full blast, even though it was the summer. Flies swarmed everywhere. Then he saw the blood. Coming up, we'll learn more about the victims and the most likely suspect. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. 
Hi, Parcasters. It's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland, where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico, where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer. And travel to New Zealand, where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location, and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. On June 25, 1968, 42-year-old Richard Robeson and his family were massacred at their vacation cottage in Michigan. A caretaker, Chauncey Bliss, discovered the bodies nearly a month later. Bliss immediately ran from the cabin and phoned the authorities. When police arrived, they found a nightmarish scene. Investigators uncovered the family patriarch, Richard, lying directly on top of the blasting heat register in a hallway. He'd been executed with a 25 caliber shot to the head. An autopsy would later show that he had also been shot in the chest with a 22 caliber gun and suffered a blow to the head. His wife, Shirley, was also shot. According to Michigan State Police, evidence suggested she had been raped. Richard Jr., a 19-year-old college student, and his 16-year-old brother, Gary, were killed in the same manner as their parents. The Robesons' youngest son, 12-year-old Randall, was discovered lying on top of his father's body. He was also shot in the head, though no bullet was found at the scene. The final victim was seven-year-old Sarah Robeson. Her body was left in a hallway. She'd been gruesomely shot in the face by a 25 caliber bullet, and her skull had been shattered. While the corpses lay in the sweltering cottage, police made inquiries and looked for potential witnesses. For a while, there were few leads. Some tree trimmers working in the area on June 25th might have been the last people to see any of the Robesons alive, but they didn't notice anything unusual that day. Police ruled them out as suspects. Other Blisswood Resort vacationers claimed they heard gunshots and shouting that night, but they told investigators they had just assumed someone was shooting at seagulls on the shore. 
Due to the advanced state of decomposition and the terrible odor, transporting the bodies to the morgue was deemed unsuitable. All six of the corpses were instead brought to the Emmett County Fairgrounds, where their autopsies were reportedly carried out in a chicken coop. With few forensic leads, police eventually honed in on one likely suspect, Joseph Scolaro III. Scolaro was Robeson's assistant at his publishing company and had been in charge while Robeson vacationed. He was also a competitive skeet shooter who owned multiple guns. Police quickly identified huge discrepancies in Scolaro's testimony. In the weeks before the massacre, investigators claimed that Scolaro had given himself and the other employees raises without Robeson's knowledge. Detectives estimated he'd also stolen about $60,000 directly from his boss over several years. Scolaro's wife told authorities that for the first time during their six-year marriage, her husband hadn't made it home for dinner on the 25th. He never called or explained his absence. That meant that for 12 hours on the date of the massacre, Scolaro couldn't account for his whereabouts. He also owned both types of guns that were connected to the slayings, a rare 22 caliber Armalite AR-7 rifle and a 25 caliber Beretta pistol. Documents showed that the suspect had allegedly given the rifle to a friend of his. The confusion over the ownership of the guns made it difficult for investigators to say for sure which ones were involved in the case. But in 1969, witness statements led the authorities to a shooting range owned by Scolaro's father-in-law. There, police discovered shell casings that matched exactly with those found at the crime scene. It was just the evidence they needed to conclusively link Scolaro to the murders. But investigators still had difficulty bringing any charges against him. The Emmett County prosecutor, Don Noggle, was tight with funds and wanted to avoid paying for an expensive trial. Other county officials, including the commissioners and board members, were also fiscally conservative. Years passed with the authorities unable to bring charges against their prime suspect. During this time, Scolaro actually bought out Robeson's business himself. By 1972, an Oakland County prosecutor grew interested in the case and became convinced Scolaro was the culprit. While the massacre took place in a different area, Robeson's publishing company was located in Oakland County. Prosecutors eventually agreed that there was enough evidence to arrest Scolaro for murder. But before they could actually go after him, on March 8, 1973, 36-year-old Scolaro died by suicide. Though he had yet to be served an arrest warrant, the case was clearly on his mind at the time of his death. He left a note which included a postscript that read, P.S. I had nothing to do with the Robesons. I'm a cheat, but not a murderer. With the investigation stalled, the case was declared inactive and shelved. The cabin where the Robeson family was murdered was demolished. Reportedly, despite efforts to clean and restore it, the stench from the bodies was too overwhelming. Even the topmost 12 inches of sand on the property had to be replaced. 
In the intervening years, several researchers have delved deeper into the case. Many agree that despite the fact that the murders were technically unsolved, Scolaro was almost certainly responsible. Stuart Fenton, former Emmett County Chief Assistant Prosecutor, agrees. He's never even considered reopening the Robeson Massacre case, as he believes it to be closed, saying, it's not being actively investigated because we all know who did it. I wouldn't really call it an open case. All the investigators know who did it. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Christine Colby, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, and fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners, it's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock, some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.